All right. We ready to, to learn together in God's Word? Amen. You ready for that? Praise God. I am too. You know, um, I don't know that I've told too many stories about my father's military career ever, but my father was a naval officer. And ironically, I grew up in Texas, but ironically, uh, my mother and father met in Charleston, South Carolina, where he was stationed, and uh, got married there. In fact, right down the street from the recent incident, right in that same sector of Charleston, close to the AME Church there. But anyway, got married at Citadel uh, Baptist Church right there in Charleston, South Carolina. And their first assignment in the Navy after he, they got married was in Norfolk, Virginia. Can you believe that? Later stationed up in Chincoteague. And uh, interesting that my father's naval history would be in the mid-Atlantic and then, and then uh, they relocate back to his home in Texas. And uh, of course, that's where my family grew up. Out of all the stories, and I, I remember I used to ask dad, um, he wouldn't tell a story unless you really urged him. If you really urged him to tell some stories, he could get going. But I usually had to kind of encourage him to tell stories. But I was always interested in, now, what did you do in the Navy? And, and I always thought it was very strange that someone that hated boats would be in the Navy. And anyway, he, uh, he trained navigators uh, in the Navy. One story I'll never forget was his experience uh, in, in the Navy during World War II uh, and the number of times he would retell the story to me of the attack on Pearl Harbor. I could hear it over and over again. Uh, as you probably call from history and, and studying and, and reading about that incident, the attack at Pearl Harbor took place on December the 7th, 1941. Incidentally, it was a sunny Sunday morning. Folks were going to church. A minimal contingent of soldiers were on duty at the time. Most of the offices on base were closed, of course, for the weekend. Uh, they had a new radar system, and it was mounted and in place, and it was uh, function, functioning and actually manned at the time of the attack. However, the incoming Japanese attack planes were detected and reported, but everyone said, must not be correct. There's something that's got to be wrong with the system today. This cannot be possible. Um, while on practice maneuvers, even outside of the harbor that very morning, there was an American destroyer that spotted a Japanese submarine attempting to sneak into the harbor. They fired upon, uh, the submarine was fired upon, was immediately reported, but the report went ignored. Now, despite these and other incidental warnings that took place on that day, as you know, Pearl Harbor faced immense losses. Great, great losses of life. The losses and the ill-preparedness came from one major problem. No one really believed it could happen. No one really believed that that could happen. I think in many ways today, we are facing a similar situation as the church, as the army of God. And uh, if we could, y'all could help me out. I'm not getting responses. There we go once again. Thank you so much. I want to talk to you today as we're in the midst of a series on five different metaphors for the church. And can I just remind you a little bit of, of where we've come so far? Do you remember we talked about the church having different labels, different names, different identities in the Bible? And we're obviously not, this is not exhaustive. But we know we've already studied the church is what? 
the body of Christ. We've also studied the church as the bride of Christ. Today we're going to talk about the church as the army of the Lord. And then later we'll look at some others. But there's all different images that we can learn about the body of Christ. And we learn from very, the very first day that we started this series, we use this scripture where Jesus announces that he's building his church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, the Bible unapologetically uses military language to describe the Lord and his people as individuals and corporately. Even back to this very scripture that we launched our series using, when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not overcome it. How many of you ever realized that that is militant language? Just the very language that's being written there is militant. It's picturing what kind of a church. It's picturing a group of people, a church, that are militant. They are overcomers. It's saying that the gates of hell will not prevail. It will not overcome the church. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that gates aren't mobile? Gates are stationary. If gates are stationary, who's doing the movement here? Who's taking the action? Not hell. I've heard so many Christians read the scripture and they think hell is attacking us and we've got to make sure that we're defending ourselves. And there is a defensive posture we take. But this is the picture of an advancing church. A church that is armed and that understands her role as the army of the Lord. Even this scripture, we see, begins to introduce us to the idea, first time that Jesus mentions the word church here in the New Testament, we begin to see that the church is an army. A couple other just introductory scriptures, if I may. Ephesians chapter 6, and I know that the, the slide, the font's a little bit small there, but if you have your Bible, simply turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, and let me just read these verses of scripture to you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. We sang about some of that this morning, didn't we? His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Stop a moment. Who wears armor? Soldiers, right? Put on the full armor of God so that you may what? Take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 12 describes layers, literally rank and file of demonic activity that are going on. And you can argue till the till the sun comes up about which order it is. It really doesn't matter. It's simply several layers and categories of rank and file of demonic powers. Our battle is what against what? Satan and his demon army. Verse 13, Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Why? Because we're in a battle. Because we're engaged in a battle, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, goes on to say, stand. 
What does this describe? This describes the fact that every one of us are engaged in a battle. It is a wrestling match. It is far beyond any ultimate fighting championship that you may see. It is a battle. It is a war. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, of course, we know that Paul, in describing his, his walk, and describing his life, he described it in this way. He said, I have fought the what? The good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Numerous times throughout Scripture, language is chosen to describe you, me as Christians, the church, and our conflict that we're engaged in. And it describes us in unapologetic military terminology. It says that you and I are in a war. The sad thing is that many Christians are totally ignorant that anything like this could ever happen, would ever, ever happen, and actually don't even have a theology that matches up with the idea that as Christians, we're engaged in a battle. So this morning I felt it so appropriate that we take a moment and just digress, probe, dig into the Word of God today to make sure that we understand what this fight is all about. Obviously on one Sunday morning we can't exhaustively cover the subject of spiritual warfare and the role of the army of the Lord, but at least we can introduce you and maybe we'll, we'll whet your appetite to dig a little bit in your own personal study. First of all, just to make sure we know who the players are, all right? Who are soldiers? If the church is the army of God, who are soldiers? And what does the Bible say regarding that? You are soldiers. I'm a soldier. I used to sing a little song in Sunday school years ago. I want to be in the Lord's army. I won't sing it for you. Anyway, we used to sing that little song. You know what the truth of the matter is? We are in the Lord's army. If you're a believer, you're in his army. And that makes you a soldier of the Lord's army. Last night... Under the threat of thunderstorms, we decided to beat our son and daughter-in-law and two grandkids from Richmond who came down and wanted to go down to Norfolk Town Point Park for the fireworks. And uh, during the, during the um, whole exercise, there was a time that the band was playing, uh, Armed Forces Band would play a song for each branch of the military, and everybody would stand. So when it was time for the Navy, all the Navy got to stand. When it was time for the Army, all the Army. Army soldiers would stand and they'd rah-rah each other, you know, give each other a hard time. And I thought, isn't that special? Everybody who, and they weren't hesitant to stand. I thought, look at and people all over. Of course, you can imagine this area. There are people standing all over, the thousands of people that were there, wherever they were seated, picnicking, whatever. When that song came, they would stand at their feet. I, went, I said, I wish the Christians were as tentative to our role and our placement as soldiers in the army of the Lord as these precious Marines and, and uh, Air Force and Navy and Army and Coast Guard. Sorry, I almost forgot there, Rick. No, I include the Coasties. Anyway, we are soldiers in the Lord's army. Now look at just a couple of scriptures. Some of these, uh, I tried to pick a few that you might not normally know. You know this one probably because Paul speaks to Timothy and he says in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, like a good soldier, tells us to do certain things, particularly here, endure suffering and other things. Like a, what kind of soldier? A good soldier of who? Of Christ Jesus. We'll come back to this verse again in just a moment. Also in Philippians 2, 25, Paul speaking says this, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, 
Now, how does he describe Epaphroditus? He says, he's my brother. He's a co-worker. He's a laborer with me. And look what he adds. He's a fellow soldier. If it wasn't important to recognize our role as soldiers in the Lord's army, why would Paul recognize in his letter here to the Philippians, Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier? Once again, in Philemon 2, we see it says, and also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. This was a common reference point, speaking about someone, and we're often, I think we're guilty of falling into one metaphor or the other more, more than we do the other. We don't give all of them justice. What do we typically call someone who's a fellow believer? What is our typical reference? Brother. It's my brother James right here. My sister Thelma. And I love that. That's great. But, you know, I think maybe we ought to just for a week or so just say fellow soldier. James, fellow soldier. Thelma, fellow soldier. What do you think? I don't know if we'll catch on. But anyway, it's just my idea. Anyway, the point is that in the army of the Lord, each of us are soldiers, right? Now let's make sure we understand all the other roles. Who becomes the captain? Who is the commander-in-chief? Jesus Christ. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let's read you the whole thing. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. But rather, speaking of who? A good soldier, right? But rather tries to please his commanding officer. How many of you here were in the military one, one branch of the other? How many of you know, understand how important it is to do what's right by your CO? Everybody understands that? Guess what? We have a CO in this army. His name is Jesus Christ. He is our commanding officer, and we are to make certain that we give him not only the honor that is due to him, but we also do everything we can to please him. There's a lot of things in our lives that we're not doing enough of to please him. We're not motivated by a legalistic life. We're motivated by simply what pleases the Lord. What can I do this week that pleases God? Today, this day, what can I do that's going to please my commanding officer? He enlisted me. He's my CO. What can I do to please him? Even all the way back in the Old Testament, which there's so many passages I listed, but we don't have time to to digress into all those. But I do just want to remind you of one story that will probably be familiar to you. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw someone standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his, his hand. I personally believe it was, it was Jesus in a pre-Messianic form. Um, it was a pre-existence of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And here we see the Lord, I believe himself, appearing to Joshua with a drawn sword. No joke, man. With a drawn sword. What does that mean? He wasn't ready to play games. He was presenting himself as what? His commanding officer. And he said, uh, Joshua asked the question, he said, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And of course, uh, the Lord answered and he said, neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord. 
I have now come. And then, of course, we know that's when Joshua fell to his ground. Listen, as long as we are looking, looking to and listening to the commander of the Lord's army, we'll stay out of trouble and we'll win battles. The moment we take our eye off the commander-in-chief, that's when we begin to fall into trouble. Am I right? This stranger identified himself. I don't believe it's really strange. Anyway, identifies himself as what? The commander of the Lord's army. Now, we understand sometimes a lot of Christians, when they think about the Lord's army, they immediately think of the angelic army. And we know that there is a large angelic army. Amen? And he commands But don't lose sight of the fact that we are a part of the Lord's army as the church here on this earth. All right. So having identified those players, let's just talk a little bit about five critical, urgent things you need to know as the army of the Lord. You ready for these? Five things you need to know. Very simple. Number one, most of this is just purely review for you and encouragement for you, but some of you, it may be brand new. Number one, know, everybody say no. no. Know that we are engaged in a battle. You have to know that. You can't act like nothing's going on. You can't live like an ostrich with your head in the sand, ignoring what's going on around you. We are engaged in a battle. Even as we read in Ephesians chapter 6, we read that what? We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Our battle is not a natural battle, but you and I are daily, whether we know it or not, whether you're blind to it or not, whether you're deaf to it or not, doesn't matter. You are in a battle. Unfortunately, many Christians act like they don't know that, and many of them are living defeated lives. We are in a battle. And I just suggested three battlegrounds that you might want to acknowledge. First of all, there's the battleground against the flesh. Hello? Battling with the flesh. Thank God for Romans chapter 8, following Romans chapter 7. But we are engaged in a battle against the old man. But then we also are engaged in a battle in this world. In the cosmos, in this world system, there, the Bible says, love not the world, nor the things of the world. And we have to live here, but we don't have to act like, we don't have to act worldly just because we're living in the world. There's a battle with the world. But thirdly, is a battle with Satan himself and his host of demonic forces. Those are three battlegrounds I think it's helpful that we be aware of. Most importantly, I just want you to acknowledge, I'm in a daily battle battle. I am engaged in a battle. Number two, second thing you need to know. Churchill said an uninformed army is an army in peril. Picture an army that is on the front lines, that is under attack, but doesn't have good intel, doesn't have good communication. All communication is dead. Can you imagine what would happen? Totally uninformed about what's going around them. Churchill said an uninformed army is an army in peril. Unfortunately, today we live in a world in which much of the body of Christ is uninformed. Hosea prophesied and said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people get destroyed. I know Christian after Christian. I know Christian marriage, Christian homes that get beat up on, they get destroyed. Why? They just don't have the right knowledge. They don't know God's Word. They don't know His truth. They don't know the strategies, the devices that we can employ. They don't know what's going on. 
They've not been trained properly. They've not been equipped. And therefore, many times, they're defeated. Well, we need to know our enemy. You say, well, I, I, I don't want to... I don't really want to know what's going on. I mean, I'm just going to focus on Jesus. Just focus on Jesus. Well, that sounds really spiritual. But the problem is the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, in order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We are not to be unaware of the enemy's schemes. Listen to me. There's a balance. Okay, there's a balance and there's a continuum. And I know Christians on both extremes. I know Christians on one end when it comes to awareness and knowledge of our enemy. I know Christians who are so totally ignorant. Many of them in denial that the devil even exists. Many of them total denial or ignorance about what demons can. They don't even want to know about it. And they're way over here. Okay, then you can go way to the other end of the continuum and you find Christians that think literally, they run every day thinking there's a demon behind every chair, behind every coffee cup. There's a demon hiding out, lurking, ready, and living so demon conscious that they're not living in victory for Jesus. Do you understand the extremes? Neither one of them are right. But there is a balance point where we can be fully knowledgeable, fully informed, know who our enemy is, be properly prepared and equipped, and walk in victory. How many of you know we're, we're, uh, we're the Millers? Millers have been here with us, uh, Chris Anna's parents, uh, for a number of months. But they live in Colorado. And uh, some week, be there last week, and we'll say goodbye to them. God bless them. It's been good to have them hanging out with us. But they'll head back to Colorado. They live in a co- part of Colorado. I'm assuming this is true. Paul, you can get me straight later if I'm not. There's a place in higher elevations, which is sometimes referred to as the snake line. The snake line. Now, I'm a Texas boy. We, there, there are not many places in Texas that are above the snake line. In fact, there are snakes everywhere. I know a lot about snakes. I haven't grown up in Texas. But there are places you can go altitude-wise, elevation-wise, that you get high enough, you rarely ever see snakes. Am I right, Miller's owner? Chris Anna's nodding her head. I'm right. They don't have to worry about snakes the way we used to fight snakes all the time. We'd always have to be watching out for rattlesnake right here. Oh, I mean, it was commonplace. Not in certain places. If you live above the snake line, listen to me. Christians, we need to live at least in our outlook. We need to live above the snake line. Live above the snake line. Don't be worried about every little bush. There's going to be a snake there. There's going to be a snake. Oh, no, they're all there. Just don't worry about it. Just live above the snake line in the way where you put your thoughts, where you put your mind and your heart. And you'll live in victory. Yes, Satan is a decided fact. But he's also not only a destructive force, he's also defeated. And we'll realize that here and share in just a moment. Yes, he is a decided fact. And yes, he's a destructive force. And you cannot minimize what he can do. People's lives are being destroyed by Satan's influences. Even his very name means adversary. Or enemy. Now what are his schemes? Oh, he's got a lot of them. Paul says, let's not be ignorant of his schemes, his devices. We know his schemes are primarily these. Number one is temptation. Number one is temptation. Number two is deception. 
Number three is fear. Intimidation or accusation. Those are his primary strategies. And most people will succumb to one or the other if they're not walking with this mindset of that we are in a battle. Number three, very, very critical. Know your victory through Jesus. Know that the victory has been already accomplished and provided through the work of the cross. 2,000 years ago, here's what Colossians 2, verse 15 described. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, speaking of who? Jesus. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan and all of his forces were defeated 2,000 years ago on the cross through the burial and resurrection by Jesus Christ. And now Jesus has led a victory march, triumphing. The word here is triumph and have a march through the city and declare your victory over all of the beaten foes. Satan is a defeated foe. He is a decided fact. He is a destructive force. Most importantly, he is a defeated foe. The Bible teaches us that he has already been defeated. We need to have that bit of knowledge well established in our hearts and our minds. Jesus stripped him, took his authority, whipped him. Now let's go to point number four, fourth thing you need to know, because I know a question marks are starting to pop up in your mind, and I want to be very, very clear about it. Before I do, I, forget, I want to mention one of the scripture. Let me see if it's up here. No, we'll, we'll, we'll give it in just a second. Number four, know this, that the, it is the army's responsibility to enforce, I want everybody to say that word, enforce, yeah, the victory of Calvary. Did you know that after, after World War II was long, settled, finished, papers signed, everybody, the commanders met, everything's done. Did you know that years and years and years after the war was over, that there were still enemy soldiers in jungles that were attacking people? In the name of the enemy? Also happened in Vietnam? Sure it did. It's very common. Now get that in your head. War's over, we have a winner, we have a loser. Time's already passed and we still have people that are what? Attacking, dangerous, still acting like the war is on. That is a perfect representation of what's happening today. The devil, because everybody asks the question, well, I don't understand. If the devil was defeated 2,000 years ago, why? Why is there so much going on today? Because he doesn't play fair. Because he doesn't play according to the rules. Because it is his strategy to use guerrilla warfare. That is the way he plays. That's the game he plays. And as practicing guerrilla warfare, acting even though he's fully aware, by the way, his demons are fully aware that they're defeated. They just need you to remind them sometimes. But they know it. Look, as long as the enemy can gain an advantage by acting as though the battle is still on, he's got the victory. 
But it's up to you and to me as soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the army of God, to enforce the victory that has been won 2,000 years ago. Listen, you can't add to the victory of Jesus. He has done it. He's finished it. He's completed everything that has to be done to defeat the devil. But you and I have to enforce it. Look, in the land that we live, there's laws, right? They're on the books. They're there. How many of you know that people don't always follow the law? Right? Therefore, we have people who walk around with a badge. And the badge represents the, the authority of the government. And it's up to those that wear the badge to do what? To enforce the law. We call them law enforcement, right? What are they doing? Enforcing the law. Someone tries to betray the law. They go against the law. They say, here, this is what the law says. I'm not making up the law. I'm here to enforce the law. You must do this. You have to leave here. You can no longer live here. It doesn't belong to you. That's law enforcement, right? Now listen to me. It is the role of the church. It is the role of Christians to be the enforcers. The truth has already been established. The devil is defeated. Every demon put under his feet. You say, well, what's my job? We have to enforce it. We wear the badge of the authority of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, with that authority, listen, a policeman doesn't act on their own authority. When the badge speaks, what does that mean? The whole government backs him up. Her up when they speak on behalf of whatever city or state or FBI, whatever it may be. The bad simply represents their authority. It's the same way with you and me. It's not up to your own strength. It's the fact that you're wearing the bad. You say, listen, it has been written. I'm here to tell you, Jesus came. He disarmed principalities and powers. You have no right to do that. I'm taking authority over that spirit of sickness. I'm taking authority over that spirit of poverty. I'm taking authority over whatever it may be that the enemy is trying to bring in. We must enforce the victory of Jesus. Are y'all tracking with me? Now look here. Luke 10, 19 Jesus tells his own disciples, he said, as he sent them out, said they returned with joy. They were all excited because all of a sudden they figured out that demons would obey them if they spoke in the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, I've given you authority. Everybody say authority. authority. To trample on snakes and scorpions. This has nothing to do with hiking protocol. All right. This this has to do with spiritual language. I give you authority to trample, to tread on snakes and scorpions, representing demonic powers, satanic activity, and to what? Overcome all, all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Jesus declared in Matthew 28, 18, just prior to telling us to go, he said what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, pause just for a moment, because some of your translations will say power. All power has been given unto me. There's two primary Greek words for power, translated P-O-W-E-R. One means power, one means authority. The one here, Matthew 28, 18, is authority. All exousia, all authority has been given unto me. In heaven and on earth. 
That pretty well covers it, wouldn't you say? In heaven and on earth, it's all mine. How could he say this? Because at the juncture in the moment that he made this statement, he had already gone to the cross, gone to the grave, come up from the grave, been resurrected. Now he makes this statement to his church. Church saying, listen, y'all don't have to fret anymore. I've already won the battle. I've already taken back all the authority. It has now been given to me. I'm holding the keys. Now I've got them. The devil wants them. I've got them. The devil took them from Adam, but now I've got them back. I've got the keys. And now I'm giving them to you. Go you. Now you go, therefore. See the therefore? And make disciples. You know, we can preach our hearts out and we can do all kinds of things to win people to Jesus and baptize them and teach them. But until you understand what he's put in our hands, when you understand the badge he's given to us, the weapons that he's given to us, wow, now we can really fulfill the great commission. All right? Now, one last thing you need to know. Number five. Know that we must use our weapons. The army has to... The army is helpless if they don't use their weaponry. I don't want to go into a political diatribe, but it concerns me when I see our government yielding our ability to use certain weapons and frequently allowing the other side to use theirs. That concerns me. It's just me, okay? Y'all just have to forgive me. It's my view. Because I think of it like this. In the Christian terms, God has given to us weapons. But I see many Christians not using them. We have them, they're ours, but we don't use them. In the Ephesians 6 passage, where it says that that we're engaged in a war, our wrestling is not against natural things. And then it goes on to say what? Therefore, put on. Put on. The whole armor of God. Dress up in your armor. Apply your weapons. There's a difference between positional truths and conditional realities. We've talked about it before. But we positionally have the armor of God. And we have the name of Jesus. We've got all these wonderful weapons that are given to us. The sword of the spirit. The shield of faith. Helmet. That all of that, we have all of that. We have all of it. But the question is, will we implement it? Will we execute it by faith? Will we put it into practice? So I encourage Christians on a regular basis, on a daily basis, simply say, I appropriate my weaponry today. I know that I've been given the full armor of God. Lord, today, I, many times, I'll just go through this process. I put on the helmet of salvation. I look like a fool doing it. I put on the helmet of salvation. I'm taking up the shield of faith. I'm taking, as a reminder, if nothing else, it's simply reminding me of my weaponry, my armor. It doesn't do any good if we don't use it. It doesn't do any good if we don't wear it. So appropriate it. Make it happen in your life. I love this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 10. God has given to us weapons that are amazingly powerful. The Scripture simply says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. 
The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to what? Demolish. Totally demolish strongholds. A stronghold is the encampment that the enemy sets up. We have power. The weapons we have are powerful enough to destroy strongholds. Oh my. I don't know about you, but that tells me that we've got what we need. We simply have to use it. All right. I'm going to review five things that we need to know. Number one, we need to know that we're engaged in a spiritual battle. Number two, we need to know who our enemy is. Number three, we need to know that our victory has been provided through the work of a cross. Number four, we need to know that it is the army's responsibility to enforce that victory of Calvary. And number five, we must know that we have to use our weapons. I want to pray with you. Stand to your feet. I intentionally tried to leave a few moments here at the end of our service so we could pray for people with needs. Because when we're talking about something like this subject, um, the realities of the warfare and the battle that we're involved with, some of you, many of you, are right in the middle of that right now. You're involved in all kinds of stuff going on in life, and you're under attack. You feel like you're in the middle of a battle, and we just want to pray for one another. Just pray for one another this morning. If you happen to be here this morning, you can say, you know, Pastor Bobby, I, I just feel like I've been on the field. I, I, I know that we have victory in Jesus, but I feel like I've been getting beat up lately. Just raise your hand. That's me. Anybody here? Just a few of you. Great. What we're going to do as we pray is I'm just going to release you to be spontaneous for a moment. And I want you to pray one for another. I want you just to pray one for another. Your turn. If you don't feel the liberty to do that, please don't feel any pressure or expectation. But I want to release Christians who do feel that liberty just to go and stand with someone and pray for them. Just pray for them. And you know what I encourage you to do? Use the name of Jesus powerfully as you pray. Pray for victory over them. Let's take authority over the defeat. Let's take authority over where the enemy has encroached. And even where he's acting like the battle's not over. Can we just remind him? Let's remind him that Jesus has already done it. And we, we have the name of Jesus. So I'm just, I'm just going to give you about two minutes just to pray for one another. And then I'll close with a word of prayer. Pray for someone just as the instruments play.
Jesus, we thank you that you've given to us the authority to use your name. We thank you that every knee will bow, every authority, every name that is named in heaven and on earth and under the earth will submit to the authority of Jesus. So we speak to the attacks, the enemy's activity that's going on even among one another, but even in our community, in our country and this world. Today we declare the victory of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we know we're on the winning side. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, that we are overcomers through you. As we sang this morning, through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, we overcome him, Satan. Thank you, Lord, that today you're sending us out on a note of victory as we stand in the gap for one another, Lord, thanking you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. We proclaim victory over one another now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. All right, for some of you that learned a new song, we're just going to sing the chorus of Onward Christian Soldiers once more as you leave today. And then you can just march out, all right? You can just march out.